Uh, I'm Ryan Jacobson, and I get to be one of the pastors here. I'd ask that you all stand with me, please, and pray the prayer that we pray in each of our services here at Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. This prayer is called the Shema, and it is foundational to who we see ourselves as, as a people called by God to live and be and operate within this world. You'll see some of us, as we pray this prayer, raising our pinkies. This is a gesture that we've learned from our Jewish brothers and sisters that helps to remind us as we pray that there is enough power and love and compassion in the tip of God's little finger to change our hearts, to change our minds, and to change our entire world. Um, So if you'll please join me in this prayer. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Now hear these words as I read to you from the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to John. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? More than these. He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. And after this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. This is the story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Some of you may remember that in the spring, we spent quite a bit of time in the Gospel of John. And if you remember that, you'll probably remember that John is an absolutely brilliant writer. The layers meaning upon meaning upon meaning into his writing. This 21st chapter is the final chapter of his gospel. But because of the way that John writes and the way that he layers these multiple levels of meanings into his gospels, it's hard to talk about this passage without talking about a few earlier scenes within the gospel first. And so we'll start today with the words that conclude our passage. These words follow me. These words, I think, are a good place to begin because we find them in the beginning. These are words that we find in chapter 1 of this gospel. And to talk about this, the first thing that we need to talk about is education. We've talked here on Sunday mornings before about the way that religious boys and girls in the first century of Israel grew up in school. But as my friend Chris Estes likes to say, repetition brings enlightenment. 
And so it's been a little while since we've talked about it, so we'll do a little bit of a review. In that society, in the first century of Israel, religious boys and girls were thought to be ready for school at about the age of five, much like our own society today. For these boys and girls, the classroom was at the local synagogue, and the textbook was often the Torah. And in this first stage of education, from this age of five until roughly the age of ten, these little boys and girls would spend their entire education studying Torah. When they were studying reading, it was from the Torah. When they were studying writing, it was writing the Torah. When they were studying arithmetic, it was counting things within the Torah. Everything in their, rela- in their education was based off of Torah. And by the time that these children were about the age of 10, most of them would have the entire Torah memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, word for word, memorized by the age of 10. At this point, most of the children would return to their families with their education complete. But the best of the students would often continue their education They'd go and they'd start to learn their parents' trade and start to work and contribute at home, but they'd continue their education in in the synagogue. And from the ages of about 10 to 15, they would study the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. In those next five years, they would memorize the rest of what we know as the Old Testament. They would begin to learn what it means to interpret the Scriptures and how to apply it to their own lives. And at this At the end of this section, they'd have everything memorized. Again, most of the students would return home. They'd start to ply their father's trade, and they'd make a living and move on. But the best of the best of these students would often want to continue their education. And the way that they would do so is to find a rabbi that they would begin to disciple under. So the best of these students would memorize, have everything memorized, and they'd find a rabbi. So let's say that we know a young man named Shlomo. Shlomo's 15 years old. He's the son of the local fisherman. He's memorized his Torah. He's memorized the Nevi'im, the prophets. He's memorized the Ketuvim, the writings. And as Shlomo has grown, he has found that within his heart is a yearning to spend the rest of his life wrestling with the text. And so he knows that he wants to study under a rabbi and become a rabbi himself. Now Shlomo, as he's grown, he's heard a lot of rabbis teach as they've come through town. But there's one rabbi in particular that Shlomo has just loved. And this rabbi is named Hillel. Hillel's words and Hillel's wisdom and the way that Hillel treats the people around him, the way that Hillel relates to the world, relates to God, just makes Shlomo's soul sore. And Hillel, it just so happens, is returning to town. This is Shlomo's chance to continue. When Hillel arrives, Shlomo might sit at the edge of the crowd and start to listen to Hillel's teachings. He sits with the disciples, the Talmudim. And Hillel, being a good rabbi, sees this young man sitting there and decides to start quizzing young Shlomo. He might start something easy. He might say something like, recite the 36th chapter of Genesis. And Shlomo, of course, would get up and recite the 36th chapter of Genesis. And as time goes by, Shlomo's questions would get harder and harder. 
The recitations would get longer and more esoteric. And over time, the questions would turn to interpretation and to application. Questions like, is it lawful to rescue a sheep on the Sabbath? What are the most important commandments? Who is my neighbor? And as these questions are asked, Hillel will see that Shlomo is obviously a bright boy because he's got everything memorized. But what really matters here is the interpretation and the application. What the rabbi wants to know is not just whether this boy can know the things that the rabbi knows, but the rabbi wants to know whether this boy can be like the rabbi. Does this boy have the potential to do what the rabbi does, to be what the rabbi is? A first century disciple was so much more than what we call a student. Biblical scholar Kent Dobson phrases it like this. He says, The disciple not only followed the teacher, but was to be the living embodiment of what the teacher taught, what the teacher's wisdom was. A disciple is one who continually, day after day after day, tries to become more and more like the rabbi in the rabbi's relationship with God and the world and the people around us. And so after a few weeks, as Shlomo has answered all of Rabbi Hillel's questions, he's recited Genesis and Isaiah and Proverbs and Lamentations, and he's begun to offer his interpretations. It's time for Hillel to move on, and Hillel must make a decision. He must decide whether this boy Shlomo can be like him. And at this point, there are two things that Shlomo may hear from the rabbi. Hillel might say to Shlomo, Shlomo, son of Zaki, you are an amazing boy. There is much honor in your father's business. Go now and return to your father's house and continue to bring honor to your father's house. This, of course, would be devastating to Shlomo with everything that he's put into this, this life that he's sought after. But if Shlomo has answered in such a way that Hillel sees within him a little bit of himself, if the rabbi believes that the disciple can be like him, then Shlomo might instead hear the words that he's been wanting to hear for the past 15 years. Follow me. These are the words that say you can be like me. These are the words that Peter and the other disciples hear from Jesus from the beginning of the story. Follow me. Many of our disciples in our story even hear it in a very unique way for their time and place. As we said, most of the students would seek out their rabbi and try to follow their rabbi. But in our case, in our story, the rabbi Jesus finds his disciples. He seeks out the disciples and he says, without qualification, without testing, you can be like me. And it's these words that Peter hears again from Jesus in this final 21st chapter of this story. Another layer that we need to add to this chapter is something from chapter 13. In the 13th chapter of John, Jesus and the disciples are sharing the meal 
that will become to, come to be known as the Last Supper. Jesus, at this meal, says to his friends, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love others. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. What I immediately notice as I read this in chapter 13 is the moment that Jesus tells Peter, you cannot follow me. But he does follow it with another comment. He says, you will follow me after. And so I don't think that Jesus here is telling Peter, you can no longer be like me. Rather, I see Jesus here offering a sort of preemptive consolation. Because we all know that in the 18th chapter of this gospel, this prediction of Peter's denial is fulfilled. This, I think, is reassurance to Peter that says that when your low moment comes, when you find that you are unable to follow, the opportunity and the capacity to follow will return. And I think it's here in the 21st chapter of John that this preemptive consolation comes to its full realization for Peter. The risen Christ appears to the disciples several times after the resurrection. And it almost seems as if this chapter is added on as an afterthought after the proclamation that closes chapter 20. But it's in this final chapter of this gospel that our gospel finds its way forward. This chapter opens in the middle of the night on the shore of the city, Sea of Galilee. Seven of the disciples are gathered and they decide to go fishing. Peter leads the way. The trip, however, is unsuccessful. Early in the morning, we're told in this chapter, Jesus stands on the shore watching his disciples at work. The disciples don't realize who he is, but when he calls out to them and says, Have you caught any fish? The disciples say, No. And Jesus says, try casting on the other side. Even though they don't know who it is that's speaking to them, they go ahead and give it a whirl, and it results in a miraculous catch. Slowly, the disciples begin to realize who it is that's talking to them from the shore, and Peter, in his excitement, races to the shore. As he arrives, he notices that breakfast is already being prepared on a char charcoal fire. After the meal, after breakfast, Jesus poses his question. Peter, do you love me? He asks the question three times, and each of the times Peter responds, Yes, Lord, I love you. And if you've been in and around the church for very long, you've probably heard that the words used for love here vary. In the Greek language, there's a lot of different words for love, and this passage itself uses two different words. When Jesus asks the question the first two times, the word that's used is agape. The third time that Jesus asked, and in each of Peter's responses, the word used is phileo. 
We've had many helpful interpretations from scholars and teachers as to why these different words are used. But overwhelmingly, in the scholarship that I read this week, in the commentaries that I read, there was no clear and obvious interpretation to offer. It was not obvious why these different words are used. We don't know why agape is used twice and phileo is used four times, and it's hard to speculate. The technical definition for these words that we interpret as love is lacking. But I do think that in this passage we do find that love becomes defined. There are at least a couple of things in this passage that are clear. First is that I think the connection to Peter's three denials is clear. Just as the scene in chapter 18 revolved around a charcoal fire, as Peter said, no, I don't know this man, this scene revolves around a charcoal fire where Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus poses his question three times, and by the third time, Peter, it says, is grieved that he would have to be asked this question a third time. Our minds naturally link each question with each denial, each question restoring a piece of Peter's mind and heart. I think what is also clear in this is that Jesus responds to Peter's declarations. Jesus responds with, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Each time that Peter responds with a declaration of love, Jesus translates that declaration into something tangible, into an action that shows and expresses love. Every Wednesday afternoon for almost the past four years, my friend Chris Estes has taken Daryl and me down to Haven for Hope Uh, to teach a Bible study. Every Wednesday afternoon, we teach about 20 to 30 people that live in the in-house recovery program at Haven for Hope uh, what is the Bible, a Bible study that we've been doing here for less time, actually. This week at Haven for Hope, our conversation revolved around the idea of embodied love. Our story, the story that we're given in the Gospel of John, says that Jesus Christ is the embodied love love of God. The way that William Paul Young puts it in the beginning video is that this is a a self-giving, non-self-centered way of love that wants to be given away. The theological word for this idea is incarnation. God wraps God's self in skin and bone and becomes human, and in this person of Jesus, God embodies Love, showing us what it is to love, loving us with all that he is. This embodied love is something that we can set against what we might call disembodied love. Disembodied love says something like, I love the orphans of Africa, but offers no tangible expression of this love. My friend Chris has helped me to turn some of my disembodied love statements into expressions of real love. I may have said before that I love the homeless people of San Antonio. But what Chris did is give me a way to express that love that is tangible, that gives purpose to my life. And in this expression of love, I have been transformed. Daryl has been transformed. Chris has been transformed. 
And I would say that a lot of our friends that we've met at Haven for Hope have been transformed. Jesus' message to Peter in this passage is that though he was unable to follow Jesus in the way that he thought he'd be able to, and though he was unable to follow at the time that he thought he'd be able to, the opportunity to follow remains. Jesus, as the embodiment of love, says to Peter yet again, follow me. As the embodiment of love, he says, you can be like me. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on this chapter, says that this is the secret to all Christian ministry. Yours and mine lay and ordained full-time, part-time. It's the secret of everything. If you're going to do any single solitary thing as a follower and a servant of Jesus, says N.T. Wright, this is what it's built on. Somewhere deep down inside, there is a love for Jesus, and though you've let him down enough times... Jesus wants to find that love and to give you another chance to express it, to heal the hurts and the failures of the past, and to give you new work to do. John finishes this gospel by making Jesus' message to Peter, Jesus' message to you as well. Jesus says to you, follow me. Follow me from the beginning. Follow me after you fail. You, my disciple, you can be like me. Embody love, feed my sheep. Please pray with me. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who gives us life, who sustains us and brings us to this very moment. We bless you, Father, that you have embodied love for us that you've given us a tangible expression of that love through Jesus Christ and through the people around us that you embody love within as well. We bless you, Father, for your forgiveness, for your patience, and for your willingness to share the task with us yet again. We bless you. We bless you for who you are for who you've made us to be. Amen.